Good evening. Uh, my name's Paul Webley. I'm the director and principal of uh, SOAS. It's a real privilege to welcome you all tonight, whether you're here in the Logan Hall, watching on the web, uh, in the Jeffrey Hall or in the uh, Students' Union, to this globalisation globalization lecture given by an intellectual and moral giant of our world, Professor Noam Chomsky. It's great to see such a large and mixed audience of students, staff, and a huge number of members of the general public. When I came across, the place was packed with people wanting to come in. Now, usually, SOAS lectures take place in our own buildings. Uh, it's a tribute to Professor Chomsky and the interest that this lecture has aroused that it's being held in the Logan Hall. This is the only place that was big enough to fit in the audience, and it isn't big enough to fit in the audience, which is why we've got all the overflow rooms. Just to put this in perspective, I've been director here for over three years now. This is the first time in my experience that we've had to use the Logan Hall. It tells you how big an event it is tonight. The level of demand was indicated by some of the comments I saw on a student website last weekend about this evening, where one student offered to sell his baby sister I'm sure he was joking, uh, in order to get tickets, and another discussed whether it was feasible to gate-crash the event. Well, I hope that in the event they managed to get in, the people who said that. If they're not here, I hope they're in the SU or somewhere. But anyway, I hope they managed to be here. They're watching this. Uh, I always associate the Logan Hall with SOAS graduation ceremonies, which are always joyous and memorable occasions. I don't think tonight will be joyous in quite the same way. I'm absolutely certain it will be memorable for all of us here. We're in for an incisive analysis of the issues being discussed. That's all I'm going to say. I'm going to pass on to Gilbert, who will uh, introduce tonight's lecture. Can I just offer my thanks to Professor Chomsky himself for giving the lecture, to the organisers, to all the people who put in huge amounts of work to make this evening a success, and I think most of all to you, the audience for coming here tonight, who will also contribute, I know, during the question and answer session to making this a really great event. Now, I'm looking for where I'm going to sit. Somewhere down there, I hope. Over to you, Gilbert. Okay. Thank you, Paul. Uh, well, good evening, and uh, uh, well, I am. My name is Gilbert Ashkar, and I'm professor in the Department of Development Studies here at SOAS, and the convener of the Globalization Lectures series, of which this evening, this evening's lecture is the first for this uh, academic year, which is the, the third year for the series. As uh, Paul uh, just said, I mean, this evening is obviously a very special occasion indeed very outstanding event, and of course, this is the reason why we knew from the start that the 300-seat uh, lecture theater that we have at SOAS would not uh, be, be enough, but I must say that uh, judging from the huge overflow of, uh, of seat requests that we have received and kept receiving until the very last moment, we could easily have filled the, I don't know, the Royal Albert Hall or anything like that and without any advertisement in the mass media, huh? just the SOAS website. So that's because our guest uh, this evening is indeed, I would say, the, the living intellectual whose fame is the closest to that of a music or movie star. And it's our great honor this evening, and my great pleasure as a personal friend to welcome, of course, our most distinguished guest, Professor Noam Chomsky. I think that Noam Chomsky's reputation is such that he does certainly not 
uh, uh, need to be presented. And I would say the very size of, of this audience indicates that. Uh, but I therefore limit myself to a brief comment by way of formal introduction. Uh, I'd say that, uh, uh, well, I guess most people know that, but Professor Chomsky's uh, towering uh, uh, scientific achievement, uh, the one for which you will find him listed among the key contributors to the history of human knowledge, even on panels in public uh, places, as I have seen more than once, is of course his revolutionary contribution to linguistics, a contribution that had far-reaching consequences well beyond the field of linguistics itself, into psychology and even biology and other fields. This is, however, a relatively esoteric uh, Noam Chomsky, an aspect of his work that, that, like every specialized scientific knowledge, is only accessible when you know the premises. And, of course, this is not the Noam Chomsky that you came to listen to this evening. You came for the other Noam Chomsky, whose reputation is even wider, larger than the first. Noam Chomsky as the foremost intellectual critic of the U.S. government's wars and its foreign policy in general, as well as the foremost critic of the prevailing world order, world social and political order. Noam Chomsky, in a word, as the quintessential, one could say, public intellectual. The power of Chomsky's critique resides in its combination of an impressively broad counter-examination of the facts with a sharp ethical standpoint, exposing tirelessly the Machiavellism of the powers that be. This is the Noam Chomsky to whom we will listen this evening, analyzing for us the global crisis in the plural and what has been called the unipolar moment, starting from the time when the other pole of global power Soviet Union that is collapsed in the early 90s. Uh, let me add just a final preliminary remark. Anyone who watches or hears a public lecture by Noam Chomsky for the first time is surprised by the exceptionally low-key tone and the low, low sound volume of his speeches, better suited to small audiences. So it comes as a great surprise indeed to anyone expecting, you know, one of those seasoned public speakers who know the ropes of the oratory art, know how to use them. Well, Noam Chomsky is very different. He addresses not the sentiments of the, his listeners, but their intelligence. And this, in addition to some recent vocal problems that Professor Chomsky has been suffering from, means that in such a large room, uh, we require from you a special attention to help us keep full silence, starting from switching off your mobile phones. Please, if you didn't think of it, do it now. At the end of the lecture, and according to the, uh, the time that will be left, we shall take a few questions to our guests from the audience. Only a little few, I'm afraid. Huh? It will depend on time, but in any case, that will be just a little few questions. And followed by his reply, of course, the meeting will end at 8.30. Uh, finally, let me express special thanks to uh, Paul-Eric Christiansen and to Katie Nugent and, and her team, whose contribution to the organization of this event was essential, as well as to all other staff members and students who helped us organize this, uh, this event. To all, thank you very much. And, well, I give now the floor to my colleague, Dr. Dan Pletch, who is the academic director of the Center for International Studies and Diplomacy, 
who is co-sponsoring this event with my own Department of Development Studies. Thank you all. Yeah. Thank you very much. I also would like to help all of our, thank all of our helpers for putting this evening together. I just want to make two points, one about history and one about radicalism and moderation. SOAS was founded in 1916 at the height of the First World War and of the British Empire. And at that time, I would guess that the vast majority of people in this room tonight would never have been admitted to SOAS, even in a menial capacity. It is some testament to the progress in some areas that we have seen since then that we have such an audience here tonight. But we should not, I think, in any way be complacent. We can look back at previous eras, as we often do in history at SOAS, at medieval Andalusia, other eras of tolerance and moderation, and see how they were swept away by violence and barbarism. We are only here tonight because of the effort and struggle of our forebears. And if our descendants are to be here, it will only be because of the relentless and tireless effort that we put in to preserve and build on what brought us here, here this evening. And the second point I want to make is about radicalism and moderation. In reading Professor Chomsky's work on politics, I've never really been struck by them as radical works, but as moderate works. After all, it's moderate to want peace, it's moderate to want equality, and it's moderate to want international law. So I hope you'll join with me in welcoming a radical, but also a great moderate and voice for common sense in international politics. Professor Chomsky. start by saying a few words about the title. Uh, a serious discussion of crises is far beyond the range of a talk. There are too many, they're too severe. Uh, what I'll try to do is mention a few of them and uh, some of their, what seem to me, their salient characteristics and then try to relate them to the famous uh, unipolar moment, which has been the topic of a great deal of uh, scholarly and popular discussion since the collapse of the Soviet Union 20 years ago, leaving the United States as the sole global superpower instead of merely the primary superpower as before, and is now, of course, very much in the center of attention with the, uh, the 20th anniversary of the fall of the Berlin Wall coming up in a few days. Uh, a sensible way to approach these topics, I think, is maybe to just fo to focus on the guiding principles of policy formation since World War II. Uh, when these are understood, it's often fairly straightforward to apply them to uh, ongoing developments. That's particularly true in uh, countries with uh, societies with stable institutions like the U.S., uh, so that the guidelines for policy remain pretty stable as well. Well, I'm going to focus on the United States for two reasons. Uh, the first is I know more about it 
the second is that it's as close to a global sovereign as the world has ever known and has been so since World War II. It was a fact that was well understood by U.S. planners during World War II as they developed uh, quite explicit doctrines that uh, still pretty much prevail. Uh, that background, I think, uh, provides the context for understanding both the unipolar moment and uh, current policies, which keep pretty much to the norm, and uh, the institutional changes which have taken place, particularly since the 1970s, I think provide uh, the right context uh, for understanding the, uh, many of the current crises. Well, from the outbreak of war in 1939, uh, high-level U.S. planners, state and private, uh, met to uh, uh, deal with the outcome of the war, probable outcome of the war. Uh, they recognized that whatever the outcome, the U.S. would emerge as the dominant global power displacing Britain. And accordingly, they developed plans for the United States to exercise control over a substantial portion of the globe, uh, what they called the Grand Area. Uh, this Grand Area was to comprise, at, at the very least, the Western Hemisphere, uh, the former British Empire, uh, the Far East, and uh, Western Asia's uh, energy resources. And in this Grand Area, to quote, quoting now, the U.S. would hold unquestioned power with military and economic supremacy and would act to ensure the limitation of any exercise of sovereignty by states that interfere with its global designs. Uh, notice that this is the Franklin Delano Roosevelt administration, the most progressive in American history. And uh, if you detect a certain similarity to the Bush doctrine that so outraged articulate opinion, it's not accidental. Uh, review of the intervening period reveals that the same conceptions prevailed throughout and still do. Just to take one illustration, uh, Bush's immediate predecessor, Bill Clinton, who's regarded as a centrist moderate, pretty much Obama's model, uh, under Clinton, uh, the U.S. officially reserved the right, I'm quoting again, to act unilaterally when necessary including unilateral use of military power to defend such vital interests as ensuring uninhibited access to key markets, energy supplies, and strategic resources. This is without even the pretexts of self-defense uh, on which the uh, Bush neocons insisted. The Clinton doctrine elicited no condemnation, and barely any comment, uh, unlike the uh, arrogant and uh, contemptuous proclamations of uh, uh, the neocons, and rightly, because it just reiterated long-standing positions and it was presented with polite restraint. Uh, in the early days of World War II, uh, planners thought that Germany might prevail in Europe, but as Russia began to grind down the Wehrmacht, the vision of the Grand Area became more expansive. It was to incorporate as much of Eurasia as possible, at least Western Europe, the economic heartland. Uh, that required dedicated efforts in which Britain participated to undermine the 
anti-fascist resistance and to restore the traditional order. These are important topics. I take us too far afield. Uh, detailed plans were developed for world order. Uh, each region was uh, assigned what George Kennan's uh, policy planning staff in the State Department, uh, what they called its function. So Southeast Asia, for example, was to fulfill its major function as a source of raw materials for Japan and Western Europe. Uh, the South in general was assigned a service role to provide resources, uh, uh, cheap labor markets, investment opportunities, and later on other services uh, such as export of pollution and waste. At that time, the United States was not much interested in Africa, so it was handed over to Europe to exploit, that's the word Kennan used, uh, to exploit for its reconstruction from wartime destruction. Uh, one might imagine different relations between Europe and Africa in the light of history, but there's no evidence that these were ever considered. Uh, in recent years, the United States has become much more committed to incorporating Africa within the expanding and deepening grand area. And uh, reflecting these commitments, uh, two years ago, President Bush and uh, Defense Secretary Robert Gates, who, as you know, holds the same position under Obama, established the Africa Command, which is integrated with other regional commands that were established during Reagan's uh, militarization of global policy spanning the globe. Uh, that system has just very recently been extended to the Southern Command, uh, which covers Latin America. The command existed. It's now been extended. Uh, that's clearly a reaction to uh, very significant moves in Latin America towards integration and independence uh, for the first time, really, since the European conquests. And these de developments threaten traditional U.S. power interests. Uh, controlling Latin America is the oldest U.S. foreign policy issue, apart from conquest of the national territory and virtual extermination of the indigenous population. Uh, in 1971, as uh, Washington was planning the overthrow of Chilean democracy, Nixon's uh, National Security Council observed that if the United States cannot control Latin America, it cannot expect to achieve a successful order uh, elsewhere in the world, meaning to control the world. Uh, today, with Latin America's moves towards independence, the problem arises sharply again. Uh, one effect of these moves is that the United States has been expelled from all of its South American military bases uh, a few weeks ago, the last one in Ecuador. Uh, the U.S. in reaction is now establishing seven new bases in Colombia, its one ally, and just recently uh, two more in Panama, which tends to be more obedient. Uh, these uh, recent moves have aroused concern in South America, uh, uh, intensified by the plans for the Colombian bases. Uh, last April, the uh, Air, U.S. Air Mobility Command, a branch of the Air Force, uh, proposed that uh, the Palancaro base in Colombia could become what's called a cooperative security location that would allow coverage of nearly half the continent by 
U.S. military uh, aircraft, uh, U.S. Fourth Fleet, which had been disbanded in 1950, was reactivated last year. That covers Caribbean and Central and South American waters. And there's a much more general policy of militarization of uh, South America that's underway. Well, returning to World War II planning, uh, unlike Africa, uh, Middle East oil reserves were understood to be, quoting here, uh, a stupendous source of strategic power and one of the greatest material prizes in world history, the most strategically important area in the world, in Eisenhower's words. The control of Middle East oil would provide the United States with substantial control of the world, in the words of uh, the influential planner A.A. Burley, prominent figure in Roosevelt and later liberal administrations. Uh, so accordingly, uh, Eisenhower's National Security Council explained that uh, there's a perception in the Arab world that the United States supports harsh and brutal regimes and blocks democracy and development uh, to assure control over Middle East oil. They recognize that the perception is essentially accurate and urge that that's what we should be doing. Uh, this, uh, these policies elicit a campaign of hatred against us among the population, President Eisenhower observed, 1958. Uh, that's 50 years before uh, George W. Bush uh, plaintively asked, uh, why do they hate us, uh, deciding it must be because they hate our freedom. Uh, the U.S. itself did not rely then on Middle East oil. Uh, rather, uh, Eisenhower and policy of Democrats in the 60s was uh, aimed at exhausting domestic reserves. Uh, the reason was short-term profit for Texas producers. But nevertheless, control of Middle East oil was understood to be essential for world control. In particular, to fend off the frightening possibility that Europe the only potential competitor, uh, might one day adopt an independent path. And that remains a very live policy concern. Get back to it. Uh, the underlying principles of policy formation, as I mentioned, remain pretty stable with their global reach. So we find the same policies enacted in different parts of the world. Uh, for example, in the early 1950s, the National Security Council uh, considered the problems that Washington faced in Latin America and Southeast Asia, which were quite similar and called for similar remedies. In Latin America, I'm mostly quoting internal documents now, in Latin America, US interests were threatened by uh, radical and nationalistic regimes that are responsive to popular pressures for immediate improvement in the low living standards of the masses and development for domestic needs. And these tendencies conflict with the need for a political and economic climate conducive to private investment and the need for protection of our raw materials. Ours, though, they happen to be somewhere else by accident. Uh, Latin Americans believe that the first beneficiaries of the development of a country's resources should be the people of that country, which is obviously irrational. Uh, since the first beneficiaries must be U.S. investors. Uh, Latin America is supposed to keep to its service function, 
Uh, it's supposed to refrain from what the Eisenhower and Truman administrations called excessive industrial development, which infringes on U.S. interests. Uh, the U.S. therefore imposed an economic charter for the Americas, which was designed to eliminate economic nationalism in all its forms. Uh, there was, however, an unstated exception. Uh, economic nationalism remained a crucial feature of the U.S. economy, which relied far more even than in the past on a dynamic state sector. It's the root of the contemporary high-tech economy, uh, often operating under the cover of defense. Well, in the early 50s, the immediate concern in Latin America was Guatemalan democracy. That had to go, uh, turning the country into a horror chamber from which it has yet to escape. A fundamental problem, illustrated by Guatemala, has always been that successful independent development, uh, even in the tiniest corner of the world, might be a model that others would try to follow. Uh, it might be a virus that could spread contagion, to borrow Kissinger's phrasing of the standard doctrine, in this case, discussing the uh, imperative of destroying Chilean democracy. Well, the same conception applied in Southeast Asia at the same time, early 50s. It's when the United States turned towards direct support for France's effort to reconquer its former Vietnamese colony. Uh, the concern then was primarily Japan. Japan was not Guatemala. It was a really important dependency. And top civil and military uh, planners recognized that Japan could be controlled only if it were assured access to her historic markets and the sources of food and raw materials in Southeast Asia. The loss of Southeast Asia to the Western world would almost inevitably force Japan into an accommodation with the communist-controlled areas in Asia. That would, in effect, reestablish the new order that Japan had attempted to create by conquest. And in 1950, the United States was not prepared to lose the Pacific phase of World War II, which was substantially fought to prevent this outcome. Uh, planners feared, in fact, that Japanese accommodation with uh, communist-controlled areas of Asia would have dangerous repercussions as far as the Middle East and Western Europe. And a lot was at stake, and the loss of even a single Southeast Asian country was therefore intolerable uh, because of the virus effect of successful independent development. Well, to prevent contagion by a virus, it's necessary to destroy the virus and inoculate potential victims. And that's exactly what the United States did in Latin America and Southeast Asia. Uh, time after time, uh, viruses have been destroyed and the region around them inoculated by installation of vicious dictators. Uh, in Indochina, the destruction of the virus was so extreme that by 1967, the respected and quite hawkish uh, military and Vietnam expert Bernard Fall uh, warned that Vietnam as a cultural and historic entity is threatened with extinction as the countryside literally dies under the blows of the largest military machine 
ever unleashed on an area of this size. Uh, the attack became even more savage later, it extended to Laos and Cambodia. Uh, one of the cruelest uh, crimes, I think, of modern history was the discussion of the, the destruction of the primitive peasant society of northern Laos, uh, which was soon surpassed by the bombing of rural Cambodia. Uh, it was known that the bombing was pretty bad, but uh, documents that were released a decade ago uh, were studied by two leading Cambodia scholars, Owen Taylor and Ben Kiernan. They found that the bombing was five times as high as the horrendous level that had already been reported, uh, substantially greater than all Allied bombing in all theaters in World War II, and that the civilian casualties, in their words, drove an enraged populace into the arms of an insurgency that had enjoyed relatively little support before the bombing began, uh, setting in motion all the horrors that followed, uh, including the monstrous Khmer Rouge crimes. In accord with usual practice, their study was ignored. Uh, it's commonly claimed that the United States lost the war in Indochina. It's virtually a cliche, but it's not accurate. It's not easy for a superpower to lose a war against a minor adversary. Uh, in reality, the major US war aims were achieved. The virus was destroyed, and the region was inoculated from contagion as murderous dictators were installed throughout the region. The most important, of course, was Indonesia. That was protected from contagion in 1965 when the Suharto coup uh, slaughtered hundreds of thousands of people, uh, mostly landless peasants, and uh, destroyed the only mass-based political organization. Uh, in retrospect, uh, McGeorge Bundy, National Security Advisor for Kennedy and Johnson, uh, he reflected that the U.S. should have ended the war in 1965 uh, since its major goals had been achieved. The virus was virtually destroyed, region inoculated. Uh, the uh, Suharto coup and the massacres were quite frankly and openly described and applauded uh, with unrestrained euphoria. So in the New York Times, for example, the editors discussed what they called the staggering mass slaughter, uh, while their prominent uh, liberal columnist, James Reston, uh, uh, described, greeted it as, uh, in his words, a gleam of light in Asia. Uh, the editors praised the Indonesian moderates who took over, slaughtered the population, and opened the country to Western plunder. Uh, where the matter has been studied, only a few countries, uh, other Western powers reacted the same way. Uh, I don't think it's been studied in England, but I wouldn't be surprised if the same will be true. Uh, Suharto continued to be our kind of guy, as the Clinton administration described him, while compiling uh, one of the world's most hideous human rights records uh, and also carrying out near genocide in conquered East Timor, always with decisive US-UK support. Uh, that continued right through 1999 uh, to the accompaniment of a remarkable chorus of self-congratulation among 
Western intellectuals who were quite dazzled by their own nobility in denouncing the crime of others. Uh, the prevailing principles, I think, could accurately be called the Mafia Doctrine. Uh, the Godfather does not tolerate disobedience. It's too dangerous. If some small storekeeper refuses to pay protection money, the Godfather, who may not care about the money, it doesn't just send the goons to get the money. It send the, sends them, the goons to beat them to a pulp so everybody else understands that uh, it's not a model that you can follow. And that's a leading principle of international affairs, not sufficiently remarked, I think. Uh, the mafia principle is so powerful that it even overrides fundamental principles of policy formation. Typically, policy formation responds to the interests of the business world, uh, but not in this case, uh, sometimes. Uh, an instructive example of this is Cuba. Cuba was the target of a major terrorist war, reached its peak under Kennedy, but continued, and truly savage economic strangulation, which goes on until today. Uh, the re details really have to be read to appreciate it. And the reason was quite explicit in the internal record back in the Kennedy and Johnson administrations. Uh, Cuba was carrying out what they called successful defiance of US policies going back to the Monroe Doctrine. And no Russians, but uh, successful defiance. Uh, Arthur Schlesinger, who was Kennedy's, uh, Latin, one of his Latin American specialists, uh, wrote, uh, summarized a study of a Kennedy uh, a team on Latin America by saying that the, prob prob the problem with Cuba is the Castro idea of taking matters into your own hands. Uh, that's dangerous. It's a model that others who are suffering similar repression might want to follow. Well, those are good reasons for massive terror and economic strangulation at a savage level. Uh, polls have been taken for the last several decades on normalization of relations with Cuba. Public substantially agrees, considerable majorities, which is kind of interesting because it's never an option discussed. Uh, but they're dismissed, uh, but that's normal. The popula population is routinely dismissed. Uh, more interesting is that powerful business interests are in favor of normalization. Agribusiness, uh, pharmaceuticals, uh, energy uh, institutions, uh, they're usually attended to, but not in this case. The mafia principle prevails. Uh, Iran today is somewhat similar. In 1979, uh, there was successful defiance in Iran. Uh, that was intolerable. Uh, the U.S. continued, without a break, its torture of Iranians, uh, going back to 1953 when, as you know, the U.S. and Britain overthrew the parliamentary government, installed a harsh tyranny. The goal in 1953 was to maintain control of Iran's resources. But the concerns were more general, as usual. Actually, they were well described right at the time by editors of the New York Times, who wrote that the uh, the coup, uh, the result of the coup, underdeveloped countries with rich resources now have an object lesson in the heavy cost that must be paid by one of their number 
which goes berserk with fanatical nationalism. This lesson may strengthen the hands of more reasonable and more far-seeing leaders who will have a clear-eyed understanding of the principles of decent behavior and will not be seduced by the berserk concept that the first beneficiaries of a country's resources should be the people of that country. So the Iranian virus of uh, the early 50s uh, couldn't spread contagion. However, in 1979, uh, the virus emerged again. Uh, the US at first sought to sponsor a military coup. When that failed, it turned to, Saddam, uh, turned to support for Saddam Hussein's merciless invasion. Uh, the Reaganites denied his most monstrous crimes, uh, Al-Anfal and Khalabja. Uh, they finally entered the war directly, uh, leading Iran to capitulate, which I presume it's very likely that that's what lies behind the scandal about Pan Am 103, which is in the news recently. Uh, I might add that the Cold War itself was, has been perceived in these terms, reflects, reflecting the Mafia doctrine. Uh, perhaps the most prominent, eminent scholar, Cold War scholar, is John Lewis Gaddis of Yale. Uh, he uh, dates the onset of the Cold War to 1917 and uh, explains that uh, the Western intervention in 1918 was defensive because it was in response, I'm quoting him now, is in response to a profound and potentially far-reaching intervention by the new Soviet government in the affairs not only of the West, but virtually every country in the world. Uh, the revolution's challenge to the very survival of the capitalist system. So everything else has been defensive. Uh, this often reaches uh, near psychotic dimensions. Uh, no time to discuss, but they're interesting. Uh, going back to Iran, the Reaganite love affair with Saddam did not end after the war. In 1989, uh, Iraqi nuclear engineers were invited to the United States. It was then George Bush I. Uh, to receive advanced weapons training in nuclear weapons. Uh, uh, Bush also sent a high-level uh, senatorial delegation headed by Robert Dole, uh, a couple years later, the Republican presidential candidate. Uh, his mission was to convey the president's good wishes to his friend Saddam and to assure him that he could disregard the critical comments he Here's now and then from American journalists. We have this free press thing in the United States. Can't really shut them up. Uh, the, uh, well, a couple of months later, in August 1990, Saddam defied, or more likely misunderstood, orders. And he quickly shifted from a favored friend to re reincarnation of Hitler. Uh, meanwhile, the torture of Iran continued without a break and still does. Uh, harsh sanctions, other means. And as in the case of Cuba, powerful business interests uh, apparently agree with the American public that the U.S. should move towards normalization of relations with Iran. So I presume, well, we don't have documents, I presume that the energy corporations uh, would be delighted to gain access to Iran's rich resources, but uh, the mafia 
principle prevails. Well, there's actually quite a lot to say about this, but I'll put it off until Thursday when I'll be talking here about the Middle East. Uh, on Iran's border in Afghanistan, and of course also Pakistan, uh, AFPAC as it's now called, uh, Obama has escalated Bush's war and is likely to proceed on that course, perhaps sharply. He's also made it clear that the U.S. intends to retain a long-term presence in the region. Uh, that much is uh, signaled by the huge city within a city uh, that's called the Baghdad Embassy, it's unlike any embassy in the world. It's to be expanded under Obama. Uh, currently, it's budgeted at uh, 1.5 billion a year. It was recently announced that that's to increase in the coming two years to 1.8 billion. Uh, Obama has also announced the construction of similar mega embassies in Islamabad and Kabul, and also huge consulates in Peshawar and elsewhere. Uh, the, uh, the tr it's, it's, uh, uh, the, the, there's basically no significant change in the fundamental traditional conception that if we can control Middle East energy resources, that we can control the world. Now, the obstacles are great, but the project is by no means abandoned. Well, let me finally turn to the immediate topic, the crises in the unipolar moment. I think they fall into place fairly readily if the context, the, the planning context is understood. Uh, the crises are numerous. Uh, two of them are special. They literally involve species survival, the environmental crisis and nuclear weapons. Uh, in both cases, tendencies are in the wrong direction uh, with perhaps lethal consequences. Uh, on the environmental crisis, I'll mention just one example, which could turn out to be the most important story of the year. Uh, as you know, in six weeks, there'll be a conference in Copenhagen which may determine the fate of the world and which almost surely will fail. Uh, last week, a poll was released by the Pew Research Foundation on attitudes of Americans about global warming. And what it revealed is a very sharp decline in concern in the past year. Uh, the numbers who believe that human activity is a factor uh, declined to just over a third. Well, that could be a virtual death sentence for the species because of the obvious significance of the U.S. role. Uh, this sharp decline can be traced very readily to a huge corporate-run propaganda campaign uh, downplaying or denying global warming. And apart from the potentially grim consequences, that raises interesting questions about policy. So why do business leaders want the public to reject what they know perfectly well to be true uh, and uh, ominous. Well, the standard answer to this, namely that short-term profits outweigh uh, long-term considerations, which is not false, but it's incomplete. Uh, why the choice? Well, the choice results from a fundamental and well-known uh, inherent inefficiency of markets namely ignoring what are called externalities. Uh, in this case, the externality is the fate of the species. Uh, the roots of the financial crisis are more or less the same. I'll return to that in a moment. Uh, the general conclusion is that markets 
may more or less work for a while, but unless they're sharply constrained, they almost necessarily lead to disaster. And constraints are not likely when major media are basically adjuncts of business, the government is largely in its pocket, and the general public is marginalized in one or another way, hence uh, susceptible to manipulation. Well, the nuclear threat is also severe. Uh, Obama's rhetoric on the matter, I stress rhetoric, a single that was singled out for praise uh, when he was awarded the Nobel Prize. Uh, there are immediate actions that could be taken to reduce the threat of nuclear weapons. Uh, one is uh, establishment of nuclear weapons-free zones. Uh, there are right now six of these. The most recent uh, covers Africa and the associated islands, uh, but it faces challenges from the United States and Britain because of a dispute with Africa over uh, the island of Diego Garcia. Uh, the population was brutally expelled by Britain so that the island could be used by the US and UK as a base for their military operations in Western and Central Asia, uh, and uh, uh, presumably as a storage site for nuclear weapons. Now, the African Union objects uh, strongly, but Britain, and they claim that it's part of Africa. Uh, but Britain and the United States uh, insist that it's to be excluded from the jurisdiction of the weapons -free, nuclear weapons-free zone. And there are similar challenges facing the South Pacific nuclear weapons-free zone. Now, that went into effect formally in 1986, but it was delayed by France's insistence on nuclear weapons testing. By now, only the United States has not ratified it, and reasons are clear. It would inhibit passage of U.S. naval vessels carrying nuclear weapons and the storage of nuclear weapons on island dependencies, which are also bases for U.S. nuclear submarines. Well, despite U.S. and British obstructionism, establishment of these zones can be a valuable step, uh, nowhere more than in the Middle East. In April 1991, uh, the Security Council affirmed the goal of establishing in the Middle East a zone free from weapons of mass destruction and all missiles uh, for their delivery, Resolution 687. Now, that's a particularly firm commitment for the United States and Britain, and in fact has very wide support, including the uh, uh, majority of Americans. It's a firm commitment for the U.S. and Britain because they appealed to it uh, to, provide a, to try to provide a thin cover for their invasion of Iraq, uh, claiming that Iraq hadn't lived up to the terms of the 1991 agreement. So yes, they're very committed to this in principle. Uh, it would cover Iran, Israel, any U.S. forces there. And with adequate, adequate verification, which doesn't seem impossible, it would mitigate and perhaps illuminate, uh, eliminate the current tensions over Iran, uh, which uh, threaten to explode into a major war. Uh, uh, and the, threat, the threats are significant. I'll come back to them Thursday. But it's not on the agenda. Uh, turning to other crises, a few days ago, there were a few weeks ago, there were attempts which failed to bring two other major crises to public attention. One was on 
October 15th, World Food Day, when UN agencies announced that the number of people facing hunger passed a billion and food aid had to be cut because rich countries were cutting back substantially on their meager promises. Two days later, was October 17th, was World Poverty Day. Uh, Amnesty, Amnesty International tried to call attention to it. It declared that poverty is the world's worst human rights crisis for good reasons. But for the centers of power, uh, these are not priorities. It's far more important to bail out bankers. Uh, all of this illustrates two other crises. Uh, one is a deep moral crisis in the crisis in the culture of, of the privileged and no less deep flaws in the functioning of Western democracies. Uh, I think these are also illustrated by, by what is called the crisis in the West. When the term is used without uh, qualification, it refers to the financial crisis. Now that crisis has deep roots. It goes back to the financialization of the economy in the 1970s. Uh, just to illustrate in the United States around 1970, uh, financial institutions constituted maybe 3% of gross domestic product. It's pushing a third right now with a corresponding decline of uh, productive economy uh, shipped abroad. Uh, uh, so that was, and the financialization of the economy, uh, one part of what's called neoliberalism, uh, also uh, 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 corresponded to a dedication to certain religious doctrines uh, of efficient markets and rational expectations, uh, all of which uh, magnified the well-known inefficiency of markets that I mentioned, a lack of attention to externalities, in this case, systemic risk. Uh, risk is underpriced, and that's understood. And to make it worse, policymakers design perverse incentives to magnify it still further. Uh, primary among them is the government insurance policy called too big to fail, uh, now getting worse. Uh, after the uh, bursting of the tech bubble of the, uh, of the late 90s, then the housing bubble a couple of years later, uh, Fed Chairman Alan Greenspan was criticized because he didn't follow through on his very brief warning about irrational exuberance. But I think that's the wrong criticism. It was perfectly rational exuberance when the government is there to bail you out. It's a doctrine being followed with precision by Obama and his advisors who are selected from the leading figures who were largely responsible for creating the current crisis. And it's working very well. Uh, the big financial institutions that were the immediate culprits are making out like bandits. Uh, you can read it in the business press every day. Uh, they're bigger than ever, reporting great profits, uh, enjoying even bigger government ins uh, insurance policy. And therefore, they're being encouraged to set the stage for the next and worse crisis, and that's recognized. Uh, but these are institutional decisions. Uh, managers either play the game or somebody else replaces them. Who will? Well, what about those who are too small to matter? Uh, they suffer. Uh, that includes the general population. In the United States, uh, real wages have pretty much stagnated for the majority 
uh, for about 30 years uh, while benefits decline and those who are too small to matter now face uh, huge unemployment and loss of their homes. Uh, also suffering are the banks that serve the public. Uh, they're going under, while those that engage in risky investments and reap enormous profits are doing just fine, uh, thanks to the nanny state which they nourish. Well, there's a great deal more to say about today's crisis, but let me end with a comment on the unipolar moment. Uh, it can be brief because if you keep the context of planning in mind, everything pretty much follows. Actually, we learned quite a lot about the nature of the Cold War and about events following, you know, unfolding uh, until the present by looking at how Washington reacted to the disappearance of the global enemy, uh, the monolithic and ruthless conspiracy to take over the world, as John F. Kennedy described it. Uh, within months after the fall of the wall, the Bush One administration outlined Washington's new course, uh, national security strategy and a budget, upcoming budget. Uh, in brief, it said everything will remain the same, but with new pretexts. So we still need a huge military system, but for a new reason, quoting the technological sophistication of third world powers said without self-ridicule or ridicule from outside. Uh, they also uh, st uh, stated that we must maintain intervention forces directed at the Middle East energy-rich reasons, uh, adding uh, that uh, in these regions, these significant threats to our interests could not be laid at the Kremlin's door, uh, contrary to decades of deceit. Uh, all of this was passed over quietly, uh, barely even reported, along with more like it. But for those who hope to understand the world, it's, it's quite instructive. Well, it was clear right away that some new pretext was going to be needed for intervention. Uh, the alleged communist menace having lost its efficacy. And uh, intellectual elites uh, quickly turned to the task, and they soon declared what was called a normative revolution that granted the United States the right of humanitarian intervention as it chose uh, for the noblest of reasons by definition. Uh, the traditional victims were unimpressed, uh, to put it mildly. Uh, High-level conferences of the Global South bitterly condemned what they called the so-called right of humanitarian intervention, right in quotes. Uh, well, clearly a refinement was necessary so the concept of responsibility to protect was devised in its place. Uh, those who pay a little attention to history will not be surprised to discover that the Western powers exercise their responsibility to protect in a highly selective manner in strict adherence to the stable guidelines of policy. Uh, these facts are disturbingly obvious and they require considerable agility on the part of the intellectual classes. It's another revealing story, but I'll put it aside for now. I'm going to return to it in a couple of days at LSE. Uh, another traditional, another a, a question that came to the fore as the unipolar moment dawned was the fate of NATO. Well, the traditional justification of NATO, of course, was defense against Russian aggression. And with the Soviet Union gone, that pretext evaporated with it. 
Well, naive souls who have faith in public doctrine uh, would have expected NATO to disappear as well. Uh, quite the contrary. And NATO was quickly expanded. Now, the details are interesting, both about the Cold War and about what's followed, and more generally about how state policy is formed and implemented. Uh, as the Soviet Union collapsed, Mikhail Gorbachev made an astonishing concession. Uh, he agreed to allow a unified Germany to join a hostile military alliance run by the global superpower, uh, even though Germany alone had almost destroyed Russia twice in the century. There was, however, a quid pro quo. The Bush administration uh, promised Gorbachev that NATO would not extend to East Germany, let alone farther east. And they also assured Gorbachev that NATO would be transforming itself into a more political organization, quoting Secretary of State James Baker. Uh, Gorbachev also proposed a nuclear-free a nuclear zone from the Arctic to the Baltics to the Black Sea. Uh, that would be a step towards what's called a zone of peace to remove any threat to Europe, east or west. As far as I can determine, that proposal was dismissed without consideration. Uh, pretty soon, a couple, very soon after that, Clinton came into office, and uh, Washington's commitments quickly vanished. There's no need to comment on the promise that NATO would become a more political organization. Clinton expanded NATO to the east, Bush went beyond, and Obama apparently intends to carry the expansion forward. Uh, his national security advisor, former Marine Commandant James Jones, uh, he has urged that NATO should move to the south as well as the east so as to reinforce U.S. control over Middle East, uh, uh, Middle East energy supplies, the traditional, a traditional primary commitment. Uh, Jones also advocates uh, a NATO response force, as he calls it, which will give the U.S.-run uh, military alliance much more flexible capability to do things rapidly at a very, very long distances as today in Afghanistan. Uh, the NATO Secretary General, yeah, De Hoek-Sheffer, Dutch, uh, he informed the NATO conference uh, that, uh, quoting him, NATO troops have to guard pipelines that transport oil and gas that's directed to the West, and more generally, they have to protect sea routes used by tankers and other crucial infrastructure of the energy system. Well, that decision spells out more explicitly the post-Cold uh, uh, War policies of reshaping NATO into a US-run global intervention force with special concern for control over energy, all quite familiar. Well, as I mentioned, from the earliest post-World War days, World War II days, it was understood that Western Europe might choose to follow an independent course, perhaps something like the Gaullist vision of uh, Europe from the Atlantic to the Urals. Now, if this happened, the problem would not be a virus that would spread contagion, but a pandemic that would bring down the whole system of global control. Uh, NATO was partly intended to counter this serious threat. The current NATO expansion and the ambitious goals of the new NATO carry these objectives further. 
well, a lot to say about all these things. I've barely skimmed the surface of the topics that were announced. Uh, hope we have a chance to pursue this more deeply in discussion. Thanks. Thank you very much, Noam, for this hugely impressive talk. And I'm sure that many people in the room would will, will, will like to, to put some questions to you. Uh, well, can, can we go for uh, 30 minutes of question, and then sure. you get 20 minutes, something like yeah. that, to okay. wrap it up? You know, or, yes, maximum. Uh, OK. So, in order to, to have the largest number possible of people among you speaking, we'll be asking you please to uh, make brief interventions, uh, put your question, there's no real proper time for a discussion, but more for questions, so no statements, but short questions, no longer than three minutes, let's say, as a maximum, if you please. So, I, I will try to designate, recognize people at random in, in the hall. So just manifest yourself and we'll be, we'll be starting. Okay? Yes, uh, one person here in the front row, please. Thank you. Um, my name is Hisham, I'm from Ceasefire magazine. Uh, thank you for the very, very inspiring talk. Uh, my question is regarding Afghanistan. Um, last week, uh, uh, President Karzai of Afghanistan um, was forced to accept a runoff to the elections. And I wanted to know whether, what, what your analysis was in terms of why did that happen and what, what does it say about where things are heading in Afghanistan in terms of uh, Karzai being forced to accept a runoff. What, what's your analysis of? Okay. Uh, Shall I repeat the question? Yeah, it's, can you repeat it briefly because he couldn't hear? Okay. It's a matter is this, of, uh, of. Is this better? The, the distance between your mouth and the, the mic is yeah. probably <laughs> at at stake here. So try to. Yeah. To, now. Yeah. Is it, is this better? Now. <laughs> I'll, I'll, re I'll repeat the question in a, in a, Please. Yeah. In a much more concise manner. Um, last week, President Karzai of Afghanistan was forced to accept a runoff to the elections because of the, the massive fraud that took place. Uh, what is your analysis in terms of why the, the, um, the US essentially forced Karzai to accept this? And does it say anything? Does it indicate a, a change of direction or is it just, um, what's your reading of this, of, of this uh, decision? And what do you expect to happen? You, you got this time. No? <laughs> okay. Why the United States? Yeah. Okay. Another uh, question? 
Hello, uh, I'm Pratyush. I'm a student at the LSE. Uh, my question is, uh, do you think the rise of uh, China and an increasingly assertive uh, Russia, especially after the Putin years, uh, poses a threat to the America's unipolar movement? You can hear it, fine. Mike. Just translate. Okay. Yeah. Can you repeat it briefly? Yeah. Yeah, stand next uh, my question again is... Uh, Stephen, Stephen, Stephen will translate oh, okay. you. This reminds me of... Uh, my wife and I once went to see a film, which was uh, a Ken Loach film, which was about... Uh, began in Glasgow and ended up in Nicaragua. Uh, and the Nicaragua part had subtitles, which we didn't need. But the Glasgow part didn't, which we did need. <laughs> yeah. um, good evening. My question is regarding Pakistan. Um, you know, with the ongoing Taliban crisis in the northwestern frontier, what radical mode of action does, you know, Mr. Chomsky expect from the Obama administration in the times to come? I'm Tarana and I'm a development studies student here. Uh, my question is regarding Afghanistan again. Uh, the reason for not supporting the Afghan National Army, do you think uh, the, the reason for that is uh, to extend the NATO presence there? And if yes, for what reasons other than the uh, border with Iran? Thank you. The reasons for supporting the Afghan Army? Yeah, that has to do with the Iranian border issue. Iranian border. Hello. Yes. Um, my question has to do with Sri Lanka and the recently um, concluded war there. Um, in light of all the human, humanitarian and human rights abuses by the government of Sri Lanka and the inability of the West, um, namely the EU and the US, to influence that either at the UN Human Rights Council or in calls for um, better humanitarian access. Um, how does he see that playing with the, the role of China, India, um, Iran, and Pakistan's influence in that area, as it's the 80% of China's oil comes from the Middle East through past Sri Lanka? Thank you. Yes. Uh, there have been several questions about popular crises, so things like Iran, Iraq, Afghanistan. In other parts of the world, there are, of course, crises that carry on without headlines, without much publicity. I'm thinking because of my own recent work of um, Western Papua, that's to say, Irian Jaya, and I wonder what you think are the future prospects there and the prospects for action both by citizens here and uh, at a more governmental level. Thank you. Questions? 
My name is Mehmet Hastan. I'm a Turkish journalist. Uh, two weeks ago, um, Turkey refused to um, refuse Israel to take part in a military exercise, and there was um, um, from Israel. Um, Turkey um, received harsh uh, criticism and threatening that um, they would lobby um, um, U.S. for uh, an European Union um, in order to put more um, obstacles for Turkey not to join the um, EU. I wonder how uh, Professor Chomsky um, see Turkey's um, response. And Turkey also just um, said that um, uh, it was because the Goldstone um, report that um, the massacre uh, taking place in Gaza, that, that is the reason why um, they refused um, Israel to take part in military exercise. Thank you. Hi, my name is Gull Davis. Am I holding the microphone at the right distance? Um, my, my question, I'm not sure, is of a line. I, I understand the premise that all these historic policies are about maintaining America's domination, but I wondered on a more, this is run by individuals, and I would be interested on um, your views on how the psychology works to be able to justify such objectively spoken heinous actions. And I was more interested in how the system in terms of individuals in power works. Thank you. Hi, thanks. Um, you mentioned in passing somewhere about the role of media in supporting the uh, current hegemony and, and the US rise of power and so on. Um, I participate in an organization called Indie Media that operates throughout the world. And I wondered what you thought about the role of citizen journalism and the rise of the internet and how that may influence future um, events and occurrences in the political state. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, good evening, Professor. I have two questions for you. Uh, the first is, Okay, firstly, I'm, I'm disturbed by the US-Africa command, AFRICOM, that you touched on, uh, which states that its goal is to deliver humanitarian aid, diplomacy, and development by way of military intervention on the ground. And does the, my question is, does the current lawlessness in Somalia serve the US interest? And my next question. Could the global strategy and policy of the US, which we see in the Middle East, Africa, and other parts of the world, 
be in preparation for a shift in the base of the ruling power from the US to another part of the world since empires never last forever. Thanks. Uh, Bob Brecht, University of Brighton. I think it would be fair to describe your conclusions as less than wholly optimistic. And in light of that, and this is a serious question, what's to be done? Yes. Me. I'm inquiring about the role of Iran in the Middle East and how much it is supported by the USA and uh, or against it and how much danger that should be uh, spread over and what should be done about it. Thank, Thank you. you very much. Any more? Yes, please. Uh, yes, here to the right. Yes, the person to your right. Yeah. Hi. Uh, first, I just want to say thank you for mentioning uh, what happened in my country a few years back. Uh, because you mentioned that um, incident in your book, uh, our government finally. <laughs> Wait a second, please. Yeah. Yeah, my government finally acknowledged that event. Um, as official, um, it's South South Korea, and um, there was a, a when the time of Korean War, there was certain uh, civil, civilians civilians were dead by um, American troops, and which was uh, really which was uh, hidden from the government. Uh, I mean, by the government, then uh, because of his work in the what uh, what America what. Uncle Sam really wants. He mentions, and him, I think he's the uh, only uh, major scholar that mentioned in the series of uh, work. And because of, I think, because of his um, contribution, uh, the, the, finally, the people who suffered from that incident was finally, uh, the event was accepted as an official. I'm not sure whether I'm making sense or not, but yeah. As long as Stephen got it, it's great. And I, uh, and I have Good. a yeah. question there. So we'll take a couple more and your last chance. Um, traditionally speaking, um, periods of multipolarity, there's an argument to be made that they brought instability and violence. You talked about the uh, deleterious effects of unipolarity, but do you think that the, the fall of unipolarity uh, and American hegemony and the dispersion of power will bring more violence in the future? 
Thank you. The person behind, just behind has been raising his hand for a long time. Can you hear me? Oh, yeah. <laughs> in light of the recent peer-reviewed paper published in the Open Chemical Physics Journal, which proves the presence of the military-grade incendiary nanothermite in dust samples taken from ground zero, as well as the growing number of architects and engineers supporting the controlled demolition hypothesis, what are your views on the possibility of U.S. establishment involvement in the attacks of September 11th? How different do you think is U.S.? Uh, wait, 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 wait a minute, please. Thank you. Uh, how different do you think is U.S. foreign policy will be now that Obama is in power? Okay, I think we'll... Okay, a last question here, but we have to, I think, to stop because I'll say... Uh, given last week um, Hillary Clinton announced um, America's renewed policy towards Darfur, I, want, I was wondering what your kind of um, like response to that was. Thank you. Okay. I mean, if you insist, one last, but this was the last one. I just uh, want to keep it short and simple. Thank you very, very much for coming. Well, that's, that's a perfect way of ending the, the series of questions. And you have been remarkably disciplined, absolutely remarkable. Very short questions. And the result is that we have had much more questions than what I expected. And it would take three, two or three hours at least to deal with all these issues. So I leave it to... No, I mean, you prefer to reply from here? Yeah, okay. Thanks. Apologies for my hearing disorder, and thanks. Uh, I don't see the, okay, my translator. Uh, in some countries, they have simultaneous translation, so you don't have to, don't need somebody like that. Uh, well, let's, I'll try to go through them, try not to forget any. First. Uh, why did the United States uh, uh, press Karzai to go through a second round? Well, I mean, the first round was so obviously faked that they really had only two choices, either accept it and concede that there's no possible legitimacy to uh, the U.S., uh, British, it's NATO intervention, or else try to create a cloak of legitimacy by having an election that somehow will be accepted. And that's pretty standard. Uh, so take, say, uh, there are innumerable examples, but uh, take, say, one of the most interesting is Nicaragua in 1990. I mean, the, the U.S. had practically pounded the country into dust. Uh, and the reason was the usual reason, the virus effect. In fact, this is one of the, I mentioned that there were some cases where the Mafia principle reached literal psychosis. And this was a case in point, as maybe some of you remember. In 1985, uh, Ronald Reagan uh, strapped on his cowboy boots and uh, declared a national emergency in the United States because the threat 
uh, to the security and existence of the United States posed by Nicaragua was so severe. And he went on to say that uh, uh, the Sandinista army was only two days away from Texas, so we were <laughs> practically surviving. But interestingly, nobody laughed. Uh, and there was a public reason, which is a, like a classic illustration of the mafia principle. Uh, the State Department, with the cooperation of the media, concocted a tale about revolution without borders. Uh, the Nicaraguans were planning a revolution without borders. Not only were they going to you know, overthrow decent order in Nicaragua, but they were going to extend it all over the world. Uh, well, that's the virus theory. In this case, you know, particularly lunatic, although not much more than many other cases. Uh, and of course, there's a source for revolution without borders, namely a speech by uh, Thomas Borges, Sandinista leader, in which he said that he hopes that the Nicaraguan uh, revolution will be a model that others might want to follow. Yeah, that's exactly the problem. It might be a virus that might infect others. So therefore, we had to destroy the country, which essentially happened. Well, finally, you know, after the place really was, it was a very hopeful place in the early uh, 80s. On the strangling embargo would go on and so on. And they listened. They voted the way Bush wanted them to. And then you have to look at the headlines in the newspaper, like the New York Times. Uh, Americans united in joy over victory for US fair play. Uh, that's not Pravda. That's the New York Times. OK, that's why you need legitimating elections, so that the uh, press, a couple of people asked about journalism, can then you know, applaud our nobility. Uh, we're united in joy, like North Koreans, uh, at the American victory for fair play, uh, namely violently coercing a country into voting our way. So that's what they're kind of hoping for in Afghanistan. Can you get a cover that looks legitimate, then you can proceed. But this is absolutely routine, I mean, case after case. Uh, What's the effect of the rise of China going to be? Well, it's a big topic. And my own, I mean, China is obviously a major, a significant economic power, but you have to be careful about how significant. I mean, there's a lot of, uh, a friend of mine who teaches history in an American college uh, did a straw poll among her uh, students, asking them uh, what do they think the richest countries in the world are? And the two countries that were way at the top were China and India. And if you read the press and commentary, you might think that. On the other hand, if you take a look at the Human Development Index, uh, last time I looked, uh, China was around 90th, and India was about 130th or something. Uh, but those are the richest countries in the world. You know? and yeah, they're kind of in the way. Like China follows an independent policies. It, you know, they're used to disregarding the barbarians. They've been doing it for 3,000 years, and they're not going to, with a brief interlude, thanks to British violence, uh, and they're not going to pay any attention now. And that's very threatening. Uh, not, they're not a military threat or anything like that, but yes, they uh, pursue their own interests. India plays a more complicated role. It's kind of playing both sides. as a close relationship with the United States, in fact, uh, India, I'm sure you know, is a 
its uh, nuclear weapons program out in violation of the Non-Proliferation Treaty. It was given a big boost by the United States last year with the Anglo-Indian Treaty, which effectively permitted the United States to assist Indian expansion of their nuclear weapons program uh, by pretending it's for uh, nuclear power and letting India divert resources. And of course, that inspires Pakistan to do the same. Uh, uh, there was a UN Security Council resolution uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, you know, which was interpreted in the West. It's not what it said, but it was interpreted in the West as uh, being a victory for Obama's policy, exposing Iran's maybe concealing something. Uh, India didn't conceal a thing. Uh, day or two after the Security Council resolution, India announced uh, that it can now produce nuclear weapons with the same yield as uh, uh, the United States and, and Russia. So you know, they're really going along and we're helping them out as usual. And didn't get reported in the United States. Uh, well, so they, but at, on the, at the same time, India's, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of in many ways improving relations with China. Uh, it's uh, an observer in the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, which the U.S. is looking at with a kind of a wary eye. It's not clear what it'll become, but it, it covers, uh, it includes China, Russia, uh, the Central Asian states. Uh, uh, it's, uh, there are observers, uh, India, Pakistan, Iran, which the U.S. doesn't like, uh, Mongolia, which I suppose the U.S. doesn't care about. Uh, and it's uh, taken positions which the, the U.S. doesn't like at all. Like it did take a stand asking for demanding, in fact, that U.S. bases be removed from Central Asia. So, and just how far that'll go, nobody knows. It's, got, you know, it's, it's, it's an area with internal resources and pursuing an independent path, which uh, uh, obviously is, does not appeal to the global superpower. But, and, and of course, it, along with Japan and some of the Middle Eastern countries, it uh, uh, owns a lot of the United States, technically. Uh, owns a lot of the debt. Uh, that's a two-edged sword, as I'm sure you know. Uh, they have to sustain the U.S. market or else they go under. And uh, they know that the U.S. can inflate its way out of uh, debt payment and in fact, nobody talks about it, the U.S. could just refuse to pay the debt. Who's going to do anything about it? Uh, so that's a possibility, too. Uh, they have, in military force, uh, sort of non, I mean, the U.S. is just totally supreme. You know, it's a, a U.S. In, military and intelligence expenditures are now uh, greater than the rest of the world combined uh, and incomparably more advanced technologically, you know, bases all over the world and so on and so forth. So what kind of a threat is China? Well, you know, it's, it's a big virus. Uh, not so much that maybe others will want to follow the example, but, you know, it's not going to be pushed around easily. So that's, that's important. It will undoubtedly play a big role in world affairs, and U.S. relations with China are ambivalent. Uh, the U.S. needs it uh, as a financier, and also a lot of the investment in China, especially toward the high-tech end, is overseas, uh, mostly from overseas Chinese, but also others. Uh, Dell Computers, for example. Uh, Walmart, the biggest retailer in the world, needs China uh, because uh, that's the way they can keep prices low. 
you know, China, bitter, vicious Chinese exploitation of uh, workers, you know, that keeps prices low for Walmart, makes them richest corporation than retail corporation. So it's a complicated interrelation. China, I think, has huge internal problems, quite apart from being way down in the human development index. I mean, there are costs that China's ignoring. I'm sure you know more about this than I do, but uh, they're ignoring uh, ecological costs, which are just handed down to future generations. It doesn't make sense to measure economic growth and not consider the huge debt, like what happens when you know, the place is internally destroyed. Uh, has uh, uh, huge inequality. Uh, don't know, you can't tell the exact numbers because it's closed society, but it's undoubtedly very high with potential major problems. Uh, so yes, it's going to play a role in the world, but you know, it, it, it's really interesting to see how the conception of China and India as the richest countries in the world and a big threat has been developed and exaggerated. Uh, not an adequate answer, but I don't know an adequate answer. Um, what about uh, Pakistan and pipelines? Uh, there, there is an issue there. Just how important it is is not entirely clear. Uh, it involves Afghanistan. There's an old plan for a Tapi pipeline, Turkmenistan, Afghanistan, Pakistan, India. Uh, the idea behind that is twofold. Uh, one, Tur Turkmenistan has a huge amount of natural gas, apparently. Uh, one is to you know, the kind of struggle with Russia about you know, the pipeline wars, who's going to control Central Asian resources. And if there's a pipeline to the south, uh, Russia's cut out. So it's kind of like the Nabucco pipeline that's, you know, winds around to avoid Russia. Uh, also, it has to do with Iran. I mean, the natural energy partner for India is Iran. And India is part of its uh, complex game has not abandoned its uh, relations with Iran over potential, a potential pipeline uh, from Iran to India, which would supply a lot of its energy needs. And the US, which is, of course, trying to strangle Iran, uh, too much successful defiance, uh, wants to avoid that, to try to part, presumably that's part of the reason for the Anglo-Indian uh, uh, nuclear pact last year. And the Tapi pipeline uh, would be an alternative that can be developed. Uh, I think it's estimated to run around seven or eight billion dollars right now, which could mean a lot more, but it goes through Kandahar province, a highly contested province in southern Afghanistan. Uh, and uh, I presume this is some part of the motive for the U.S. war in Afghanistan, but how much we just, we, I don't see how we can tell. We don't have any internal documents and nobody's telling the truth. So you have to kind of speculate about what role it plays, probably some. Uh, why support the Afghan army? Uh, I don't think it has to do with Iranian border issues. I mean, Iran is basically an ally of the United States in Afghanistan. Uh, it supported the US the U.S. doesn't want it to be an ally. It's part of the strangulation of Iran. But uh, Iran you know, is very hostile to the Taliban for all kinds of reasons. It has intimate relations with the regions of Afghanistan uh, nearby uh, Iran, the city of Herat, and so on. You know, traditional relations have now been intensified. And uh, Iran did cooperate with the United States in 
invading Afghanistan and undermining the Taliban, and presumably would again. I mean, apparently the Iranians were pretty surprised and upset when uh, their support for the U.S. in Afghanistan was greeted uh, with the axis of evil speech, saying, okay, forget what you did, we're going to go after you, because, uh, you know, the mafia principle is more important. Uh, nevertheless, uh, there are good reasons for supporting the Afghan army, and they go back to the origins of colonialism. I mean, take, say, the British, uh, the British in India. I mean, the soldiers were mostly Indian, uh, certainly up to the uh, Indian so-called mutiny, you know, rebellion against the British. And in fact, Indian soldiers were being sent all over the world to fight British wars. That's where the Gurkhas come from. The trick was to take soldiers from one part of India and send them somewhere else, uh, in India or elsewhere. Uh, and the same is true of every other colonial power. I mean, France used the Foreign Legion. Uh, Britain, back in the days of the American Revolution, used Hessians. And, I mean, typically, countries try to use sane imperial powers that try to use either mercenary armies like the French Foreign Legion or indigenous armies, which can be co-opted along with indigenous elites. In fact, that's part of the lesson that the United States learned in Vietnam. Uh, that there was a tac I, I think it's true to say, as I said, that the U.S. effectively won the war. But there were tactical errors. And the worst tactical error was to try to use a civilian army to fight a colonial war. And that just doesn't work. You can't take people off the streets and expect them to fight a colonial war, which is vicious, brutal, and sadistic in the very nature of it. Uh, so the, the U.S. Army recognized that, and by the late 60s wanted to get rid of the civilian army and turn to you know, what are called volunteers. Uh, volunteers means it's a mercenary army of the disadvantaged. Uh, you don't have uh, recruiting centers in Harvard Square, uh, but you do have recruiting centers in the Boston slums. Uh, and all kind of promises which are not kept about what will happen and so on. Uh, so, and uh, the best thing in Afghanistan would be to have a mercenary army, you know, an Afghan army. And in, in fact, the U.S. model of imperialism it was a little bit different than the European models. I mean, uh, d discounting the fact that the conquest of the national territory itself should be called imperialism. In fact, was by, by the people who were carrying it out. But uh, the overseas expansion, you know, after 1898, uh, uh, that did develop a somewhat new model of uh, imperialism. Actually, there's a magisterial study of this that just came out by Alfred McCoy, a historian at the uh, uh, University of Wisconsin. It's about the Philippines. Uh, the U.S. invaded the Philippines with, of course, the noblest of objectives and so on, uh, massacred a couple hundred thousand people, but then they had to somehow control it, and up until today it's still not controlled. And what they did was novel. Uh, the U.S. occupiers uh, developed a very high-tech surveillance state using all the most advanced you know, technology available at the time for surveillance, uh, control, and so on, and also for subversion. So like they managed to break up the nationalist movement in part just by a, a careful understanding of the, what was going on among the elites and starting rumors and turning people against one another and so on and so forth, which was pretty successful. And also co-opting elites, same people who run the Philippines now, but in the background is as usual the mailed fist 
That was the Philippine Constabulary, uh, a mercenary army of Filipinos, which uh, still pretty much dominates the society. This whole framework is still in place pretty much in the Philippines. Uh, one of the reasons why the Philippines haven't taken part in the uh, you know, so-called Asian economic miracle, the model that was established was firm, that remained. It was then applied elsewhere. Uh, when Woodrow Wilson invaded Haiti and the Dominican Republic, applied the same, a couple of years later, he applied the same model, left them in the hands of National Guards, uh, and so it goes on throughout the region. And this model also bounced back uh, to England, for example. Uh, England is the surveillance state par excellence. And if you look at the history starting in World War II, it's adopted a lot of these methods. The US too, uh, the Red Scare during and after World War I was following models brought back to the United States from the people who implemented the uh, high-tech surveillance state in the uh, Philippines, and the same is true since. Uh, so that's, but you need the Philippine constabulary, or the counterpart, and uh, that's why you need an Afghan army. It's, uh, you know, they call it an Afghan army, but it'll be a mercenary army of Afghans on the model of uh, other imperial powers in the United States itself like the Philippine Constabulary, the National Guards, uh, the use of uh, Native American tribes during the colonization of the country itself to attack other uh, uh, Native American tribes. I mean, you know, these are the ways imperial systems work. Uh, what they're trying to do in Afghanistan is just a perfectly standard model that has plenty of examples. Um, whether they can do it or not is another question. Uh, Sri Lanka. Well, um, you know, it's been a horror story, for especially towards the end. And it, it illustrates a number of things. Uh, for example, it illustrates just what is meant by responsibility to protect. A lot of noble rhetoric about responsibility to protect. But there was no particular Western advantage in protecting people who are being slaughtered and driven into concentration camps. So somehow that didn't make it uh, in the noble rhetoric. I happened to be giving a talk about this at the General Assembly last summer, and you know, the hypocrisy was so profound, you, you, it was suffocating. I mean, no protection for people who it doesn't do us any good to protect, basically. And Sri Lankans have that unfortunate position. Uh, what about uh, China? You know, they don't gain anything by supporting uh, uh, Tamil refugees in concentration camps, so why should they do it? Uh, uh, in fact, most of the South supported the Sri Lankan government, as I'm sure you know. You know that's who they are. You know, they are the elites of their countries. They support the elites of other countries in the South. It happens all the time. It's, it's important. I mean, there's another talk that I was kind of thinking of giving, but didn't, but some, I would like to someday, which has to do with the fall of the Berlin Wall. Uh, which can be looked at quite a different way. Uh, Berlin Wall fell on November 9th. Huge celebration in the West uh, right now. You know, all kind of self-congratulation about how marvelous it was. And yeah, it was good that the Russian dictatorship collapsed and uh, that Eastern Europeans had a breath of freedom. But other things were happening at the same time. Uh, so for example, a couple of days later on November 16th, uh, there was a real termination of the drive for 
to break out of the neocolonial order that began in the 50s and looked kind of promising in the 60s, but was viciously beaten back by the Western powers. And it had many aspects, one of them being liberation theology, which was totally smashed by US violence and Vatican cooperation with the help of the Western powers. And the last sort of whisper of it was on November 16th, 1989, so also 20 years ago, namely the, the brutal assassination of six leading Latin American intellectuals, Jesuit priests in El Salvador, which kind of framed the decade of the 80s. Uh, began with the assassination of an archbishop, a voice for the voiceless reading mass, uh, ended with the murder of the six Jesuit intellectuals uh, by elite forces armed and trained by the United States, which had already killed you know, thousands, if not tens of thousands, of the usual victims, you know, peasants and so on. This all kind of passed without a whisper in the West. I mean, if that had happened in Czechoslovakia, we'd probably had a nuclear war. Uh, but it happened in El Salvador, you know, these kind of insignificant people, and it was a kind of a, and not just El Salvador, it was even worse in Guatemala, I mentioned. Uh, and in fact, it goes on, like about probably a million or more people were killed in the neighborhood of South Africa, Mozambique and Angola, thanks in no small measure to Reagan's support for his friends in South Africa. Uh, and of course, defense of South Africa against uh, one of the more notorious terrorist groups in the world, as the Washington declared it in 1988, namely the African National Congress. Uh, you may be relieved to know that Mandela was finally removed from the terrorist list a couple of months ago. Uh, so all of this was going on, and it was kind of the terminus of a major attack against the South, which did destroy the hopes in the early 60s for a, a new world that would pay attention to things like racism, inequality, justice, and so on. And that was beaten back uh, all of, in many dimensions. And uh, November 16th was a, a kind of a symbolic end to it, but that's not going to be commemorated. Actually, I have in, in my office uh, at MIT a, a, a painting that was given to me by a Jesuit priest, which is a kind of artistic depiction of the assassination of the six Jesuit intellectuals. It's a picture of the angel of death and standing under him is you know, kind of a caricature of the Archbishop, Archbishop Romero, then the six Jesuit priests, their housekeeper and their daughter. And I put it there sort of to remind myself of the real world, but it also has served another purpose in the last 15 or so years. It's kind of a Rorschach. Uh, from the United States, nobody has a clue what it is. From Europe, maybe 10% know what it is. Uh, from Latin America, up until recently, everybody knew what it, was, what it is. Now that's declining as the brainwashing and indoctrination begins to set in among the young. Just suppose that it happened in Czechoslovakia, let's say. As I said, we'd, we'd, everybody would know, and we'd probably have had a nuclear war. Uh, but. Uh, not here. These are our atrocities and the culmination of massive atrocities going way back. Well, that's uh, maybe a little off the mark of the question, but that's an alternative talk that somebody ought to give, or a book that they ought to write. Or there's a couple of dissertations for you. 
it, it's a major topic. That's what we ought to be talking about this November. Uh, you can guess how much discussion there's going to be about it, or for that matter, how much discussion there'll be about the way the Bush administration reacted to the fall of the wall. It's barely been discussed, you know, the technical literature is mentioned of it, but hasn't been an issue, uh, despite the fact that it's very illuminating. Now, this goes to one of these questions about what do you do about uh, unpublicized crises? It said small unpublicized crises, they're not so small. And what you do is try to break through the silence. The silence is almost a, you know, kind of like an institutional requirement of the educated sectors of the population. That's what intellectuals are for, historically, all the way back. Uh, mainstream of intellectuals very typically have been, you know, flatterers to the court. Uh, some dissidents around the fringe are usually treated pretty badly if they're in Czechoslovakia, you know, maybe go to prison for a while. If they're in El Salvador, they get their brains, brains blow, blown out. Depends on the country that's uh, administering it. But uh, that's pretty much their role, and you have to break through that. I'll come back to that. Uh, well, so what, that's what, actually a comment on the next question, what can you do about unpublicized crises? Break through the silence. Uh, and that takes work, but it can be done. I mean, take, say, the Vietnam War, which I mentioned. Uh, Viet, uh, this relates to another question about what can citizens do. Uh, compare the, there's a lot of comparison of the opposition to the Vietnam War to the opposition to the Iraq War. But I think it's, it, it's forgetting what happened. There was almost no opposition to the Vietnam War. In fact, very few people even are aware of when it, when it started as an actual war instead of just, you know, killing a lot of people and imposing a terrorist state. Uh, the actual war began in 1962. Uh, that's when Kennedy, who was a super hawk, incidentally, quite distinct from the image that's been concocted and stayed so. Uh, in 1962, he uh, sent the US Air Force to bomb South Vietnam. Planes had South Vietnamese markings, but didn't confuse anyone. Uh, authorized napalm, uh, authorized chemical warfare to destroy crops and ground cover, uh, initiated some operations again in North Vietnam, uh, began programs to drive uh, people to, uh, peasants to uh, what amounted to concentration camps called strategic hamlets or just urban slums, ultimately many millions, uh, to try to officially to protect them from the guerrillas uh, who they knew perfectly well, and it's now conceded, who they were willingly supporting. That's why they had to be separated from the population. It's, called counterinsurgency, very fashionable now. Uh, the, uh, that's 1962, now that's a war. I mean, if, if some enemy did that, we'd call it aggression. And you know, go crazy with uh, hysteria. There was no reaction. I mean, almost nothing. You couldn't get three people in a room to talk about it. All right, it there was a finally a reaction, but years later, roughly the time of that Bernard Fall quote that I cited, you know, just at about the time when serious observers were wondering if the country was even going to survive. Uh, yeah, by then you had large-scale opposition, and it had an effect. Uh, so uh, if you read the Pentagon Papers, uh, there's some very, most of it is pretty routine, but there are some interesting passages, uh, namely those which are never cited, not unusual. Uh, the Pentagon Papers ends in mid-1968 right after the Tet Offensive, a couple of months later. 
Uh, after the Tet Offensive, the Joint Chiefs, uh, uh, Johnson, President Johnson, wanted to send a couple hundred thousand more troops to South Vietnam. Uh, the, uh, the Joint Chiefs of Staff uh, were, didn't want to do it, and they explained why. They said they would need them for civil disorder control in the United States. Uh, there'd be an uprising among uh, women, young people, minorities, and so on, and they'd need the troops to control it. So, in fact, that's one of the reasons why the business world pressured Johnson to start negotiations and, you know, beginning of withdrawal of U.S. troops to turn to more, you know, cost-effective bombing instead of uh, troop presence. Well, that's uh, something that the public did. Now, some people, like Dan Ellsberg, who's in the time, part of that time was in the administration and was a specialist on nuclear weapons there, long history. He argues he could be right that uh, Nixon probably would have used nuclear weapons when he came in if it hadn't been for the public uproar. Well, maybe. We don't know. But it put a kind of a limit on it much too late. I mean, long past the period when it wasn't clear if it would even survive and totally inadequately with regard to North, the Laos and Cambodia, which there was no protests, so they're pretty free to do things. Uh, take Iraq. Uh, the Iraq war was, there was massive protest before it officially started. And I stress officially because your candidate for president of the presidency of the EU and uh, his colleague George Bush knew that they were already, had already started the war when they were putting on a show about uh, wanting diplomacy and so on. But before it was officially started, March 2003, there was a massive international protest. I think that's the first time in history that an imperialist war has been massively protested before it was officially begun. And it had an effect. Uh, the United States could not use, the United States and Britain couldn't use the tactics they used in South Vietnam. There was no saturation bombing by B-52s, so there was no chemical warfare. Um, horrible enough, but uh, could have been a lot worse. And furthermore, uh, the Bush administration had to back down on its war aims, step by step. Uh, it had to allow elections, which they didn't want to do, uh, mainly a victory for nonviolent Iraqi protests. They could kill insurgents. They couldn't deal with hundreds of thousands of people in the streets, and their hands were tied by the domestic uh, constraints. They finally had to abandon virtually, officially at least, virtually all the war aims. I mean, as late as November 2007, uh, the U.S. was still insisting that the Status of Forces Agreement uh, allow for an indefinite U.S. military presence and privilege, privilege access to Iran's resources by U.S. investors. Well, they didn't get that on paper, at least, and they had to back down. Okay, that's, uh, I mean, Iraq's a horror story, but it could have been a lot worse. So yes, citizen uh, protest can do something, but uh, and we know that from these and many other examples. When there's no protest and no attention, uh, the power just goes wild, like in Cambodia or northern Laos. Uh, well, I'm sort of running through the questions, not exactly in order. What about the future of Turkey as an independent actor? I mean, Turkey is very it could become a significant independent actor. I mean, Turkey has to make some internal decisions. Is it you know, going to face West and try to get 
accepted by the European Union, or is it going to face reality and recognize that Europeans are so racist that they're never going to allow it in? I mean, they keep raising the barrier on Turkish entry into the EU, and there are plenty to be concerned about in Turkey and some horrible things, but every time it improves, the barrier goes up with it. And if you look at polls, the reason is pretty obvious. I mean, you know, Europeans just don't want Turks walking around the streets. Uh, okay, so someday they're going to have to face that and recognize that a future for Turkey will lie in part in its strategic relationship with the West, U.S. primarily, but others too, uh, but also its uh, opening to the East. And for example, a very natural trading partner for Turkey is Iran. Uh, it can provide manufactured goods, and get energy it needs, and it also has you know, an opening to other Middle Eastern countries. So that's a possible future for uh, Turkey, but uh, the question was, could it become an independent actor? Yes, it could. And in fact, it did so quite interestingly in uh, March 2003. Uh, remember what happened then. Which I, I read an editorial in The Guardian this morning, which is usually pretty accurate about these things, but they made a distinction between old Europe and new Europe, but they didn't draw the lines correctly. They drew them in a line with contemporary propaganda, which says New Europe is Eastern Europe, you know, people who want NATO around, and old Europe is uh, the West. It's not the way the lines were drawn. Uh, they were drawn very sharply and clearly when Rumsfeld proposed the concept and, you know, everyone applauded it. Uh, old Europe were the countries where the governments uh, followed the will of the majority of the population and refused to participate in the Iraqi war. Those were the bad guys. The government was following the will of the population. New Europe was led by Berlusconi and Osnar, uh, Italy and Spain. That, those are countries where the government re rejected a far greater majority of the population. So they were the good guys, New Europe. Uh, Osnar was so great that he was invited to the uh, summit with Blair and Bush when they announced the war. At that time, he had 2% support. So therefore, he was the f flaming symbol of democracy. But the most extreme example of old Europe was Turkey. Turkey, in Turkey, about 95% of the population opposed participation in the war. And to everyone's surprise, the Turkish government went along with 95% of the population, kind of like old Europe, you know. And uh, the United States was infuriated. Uh, Colin Powell threatened all sanctions and so on, and uh, uh, Wolfowitz, who was, you know, designated the idealist in chief of democracy promotion, uh, he uh, uh, denounced the Turkish military for not rejecting 95% of the will of the population. Explain to him, look, you can do it. You have the power. And you have to under he asked the Turkish military to apologize to the United States and to recognize that their job is to serve American interests. Uh, that's called democracy promotion. And uh, all this passed very quietly and has now kind of been put in the part of history where unpleasant facts are. Uh, but that's, Turkey was acting independently. And, you know, was, uh, 
and it's acting independently now, like uh, you know, refusing to take part in the current uh, uh, U.S.-Israeli, probably NATO exercises, which are very explicitly aimed at uh, th you know, threatening Iran. They <coughs> go along. But those are choices they have to make. Uh, what about the psychology behind American policy, especially when policies become atrocious? Uh, well, you know, there's an answer to this. It was given by Thucydides. Uh, the strong do as they wish, and the weak suffer as they must. Okay, so one of the other few principles of international relations. And there aren't many principles of international relations, but there are a few. The principle of Thucydides, the Mafia principle, a couple others, they work very well. Uh, so, uh, and what about the population? Well, you know, either they're Sometimes they support the atrocities, usually uh, with a sense that they're defending themselves. That requires, uh, it requires a kind of a history of imposing an imperial mentality, but partly just fear. And that's another time when it really gets psychotic. I mean, if you go through the history of, say, the American Indian Wars, or, you know, the British Empire, it's horrific. I mean, but you know, all kind of horrible atrocities, and they were supported. You know, like uh, people like by some of the uh, most uh, remarkable, uh, outstanding figures, like say John Stuart Mill. Just read sometime if you haven't done it his essay on humanitarian intervention, which is considered a classic. Uh, uh, right after the uh, atrocities in uh, India in 1857. I mean, it's hair-raising. Uh, but, uh, but by the population generally. So let's take, take a case from Vietnam, which didn't arouse a murmur, but does reflect the reason why people accept horrendous atrocities. It's obvious why the powerful carry them out, if they can get away with it. Yeah, why not? Uh, but. Uh, why do people accept them? Well, in 1967, Lyndon Johnson, who was you know, kind of like a person who spoke from the people, you know, he was expressing kind of folk wisdom. Uh, he gave a speech in 1967 in which he explained why we have to keep fighting in Vietnam. And what he said was almost verbatim. He said, look, there are 150 million of us, and there are 3 billion of them. And if might makes right, they're going to sweep over us and take what we have. So we have to stop them in Vietnam. Okay, uh, that's internalized, you know, and it reflects deeply rooted imperial mentality, and it shows up all the time. That's why among elites, you know, educated elites, there's virtually no principled criticism of the Vietnam War, or for that matter, the Iraq War. I mean, the strongest criticism you can find in you know, our educated elite circles is a mistake. Like, uh, for example, Obama is uh, you know, praised because he took a principled stand against the Iraq War. Uh, what was his principled stand? Uh, that it was a strategic blunder. You could have read that in Pravda in 1983 about the invasion of Afghanistan. Uh, it's probably what the German general staff was telling Hitler after Stalingrad. There's nothing principled about it. It wasn't a strategic blunder. It was a major crime. But those notions are almost inexpressible. 
So what's the psychology behind it? If you get to the point where you have power and there are interests you want to follow, you use that power or else you're out and somebody else comes in and that person uses it. It's kind of like institutional facts. Thucydides had it right. Uh, as for the population, it depends how manipulated they are or how much they actually believe that we're about to be overrun by those massive hordes. We have to protect them, to protect themselves out there. Actually, that comment from John Lewis Gaddis that I quoted before about the Russian Revolution uh, maybe sounds a little less vulgar, but it's similar. I mean, the Russian Revolution was a challenge that we had to defend ourselves against because they were going to try to reform their society. And they were calling for others to do the same. And that justifies invasion. Obviously, we have to protect ourselves. Uh, well, you know, that's Yale University, you know, the dean of Cold War studies and so on. Now, these are very deeply rooted attitudes, and they do reach the public, and it's a lot to do about it. Next question was about the role of journalism. Well, you know, that's what journalism ought to be about, uh, of course. And there are some journalists who do it, but the, the margin who try to do it are like share the fate typically of dissidents in other societies, uh, marginalized in one way or another. And sometimes they partially get through. You have a fringe in them on some issues. But uh, uh, if journalism really committed itself to this ro uh, role, it would have to be an independent, popularly supported force outside of sectors of power. Uh, and that requires popular organization, you know, education, I mean, things like that happen. That's where dissident journalism comes from and sometimes really survives. Like, say, uh, I happened to be in Mexico a couple of weeks ago. It's about the, they have a newspaper, La Jornada, which is a real independent newspaper. I think it's maybe the only one in the hemisphere. It's not an offshoot of the corporate system. It's not a state journal. It doesn't get any ads because business won't advertise in it. And it's very honest and accurate. Um, I learned, I was there for a couple of days. I learned things I couldn't find in the international press. You know. uh, well, a lot of dedicated you know, journalists, serious journalists, and it's become, I think, the second largest newspaper in Mexico. <coughs> can be done, it's not easy. Uh, what about the internet? It can contribute to this, but uh, you know, the internet is, uh, it's, it's, it's an ambiguous instrument. I mean, you can use it for liberation, you can use it for control. And uh, it's actually being used both ways. And it depends, you know, depends on people like you which way it's going to work. You know, uh, there's no simple answer to that. Um, uh, what about the role of AFRICOM, the African Command, and particularly with regard to Somalia? Uh, well, actually, here, uh, some journalists like uh, Johan Hari of The Guardian have done a good job in exposing a large part of what actually happened in Somalia. And Somalia, as you know, we're supposed to be worried about pirates. Uh, yeah, piracy is not nice. But uh, where did it come from? Well, without going into the earlier history, as Hari and others have pointed out, one of the immediate reasons for uh, piracy is that the European Union and Saudi Arabia and a couple of others are, are simply destroying the waters, uh, Somalia's uh, territorial waters. 
by dumping waste, toxic wastes, probably nuclear wastes, and so on, and also by overfishing. Okay, what happens to the fisher, you know, the fishermen in Somalia? Okay, become pirates, uh, and then we're all upset about the piracy. You know, not about having create a, created a situation where there aren't a lot of options. And if you go back like a year or two further, you find more. So one of the great achievements of the war on terror, Bush's war on terror, was to which was greatly hailed in the press when it was announced, was closing down an Islamic charity, uh, Al Qat, which was you know, identified as you know, supporting terrorists and so on. Okay, turned out that a couple of months later, the government kind of quietly recognized that they were wrong, and the press may have had a couple of lines about it. But meanwhile, it, it, it uh, was a major blow against Somalia. Somalia doesn't have much of an economy, but a lot of it was supported by this charity. Uh, not just giving money, but running banks and businesses and so on. It was a significant part of the economy of Somalia, closing it down, pulled the props out from under that, and is another uh, contributory factor to the breakdown in a very weak society. If you go back a couple of years beyond, you, you find more of that. So yes, there's a lot to say about Somalia way back, uh, which occasionally is said, like there are a couple of journalists who report parts of it, but not much. Uh, AFRICOM is uh, an expansion of the uh, global system of surveillance and control. Uh, it, the United States, it's not 1948, and the US wasn't interested in Africa and was happy to hand it over to the Europeans to exploit. I mean, that's changed over the years, and AFRICOM is part of that system. It's supposedly, it's linked up to the other commands, and as I mentioned, the, the newly expanded SOUTHCOMs, uh, Southern Command in Latin America is supposed to link up with it. If you read that document that I mentioned, the Air Force document, it talks about how this regional system could be linked to uh, the African command by getting bases, say, maybe if they can get bases in, say, Recife and Brazil will be closer to Africa and other bases, and then they can kind of link them up, and it'll extend the U.S.-run uh, global system of surveillance and control. That's the role of Africa. Uh, what about shift of the center of empire to other parts of the world? I, I don't really see that happening in the at least short-term future for the reasons I mentioned. I mean, it's, it's a much more diverse world economically than it was, say, 50 years ago, or even 30 years ago. But militarily, in terms of force, it's just completely unipolar. I mean, I mentioned some of the figures, but uh, the U.S. just dominates the whole world militarily and is helped by you know, it's Britain and other major military powers. There's just no competitor to that nexus. And, none seemingly arising. Oh, okay, I gotta stop. Uh, well, uh, one of the questions, if uh, maybe you'll be here Thursday, I'll talk about then, Iran and the Middle East. Uh, uh, um, what about uh, US and 9-11? Well, that, I think, that's a very popular idea. And it's interesting that it developed. I mean, it's a, like in the United States, maybe a third of the population or something like that thinks that Bush was somehow responsible for 9-11. Uh, 
I mean, and then there's a huge technical literature about, the, you know, did they find thermite and this, that, and the other thing. But, and people devote, dedicate themselves to becoming specialists in this topic. But if you think about it for about 30 seconds, for Bush or the U.S. to have carried out 9-11, they would have to be literally insane. I mean, if they, were, if they had carried out 9-11, they would have blamed on Iraqis, not on Saudis. I mean, they were desperately trying to find an excuse to invade Iraq. If they'd done that, you know, they wouldn't have to worry about popular opinion, get a Security Council resolution, NATO would go along. Instead, by blaming it on Saudis and harming their relations with one of their most valued allies, uh, they had to jump through hoops to try to concoct an excuse for uh, invading Iraq. We know what that led to. They had to get diverted into Afghanistan, which didn't mean that much. So, yeah, they would have to be insane. Uh, if it was an inside job, uh, the finger of guilt points to people who wanted to divert the United States away from attacking Iraq and towards Saudi Arabia. I can think of only two, uh, Saddam Hussein and Osama bin Laden. I mean, follows almost immediately. Uh, so I, I just don't think it's a serious thesis, and it's a kind of an interesting question of why it seems so uh, plausible to so many people. And I think the reason for that is just the tremendous cynicism that's been aroused by what governments do. You know, so you're willing to believe they can do anything. Uh, okay, that's kind of understandable, but I think one has to think about these things a bit. Uh, Obama, any changes? You know, I think, <laughs> yeah, some. I mean, there were changes between the first Bush term and the second Bush term. The first Bush term went way off the spectrum. I mean, so much so that it was condemned right in the mainstream, you know, foreign affairs and journals like that. And U.S. prestige in the world sank to historic lows. So it was obvious that, you know, whoever, whoever has authentic power is going to pull them back. And the second term was quite different. It was more moderate. They got rid of Rumsfeld and Wolfowitz and couple of the other extreme characters. And uh, you know, they moved back more toward the moderate center, and Obama's doing the same. Uh, maybe there'll be a little bit of a switch beyond, but so far there's very little to point to, and no reason to expect much. Uh, and it doesn't make a lot of sense to be disillusioned. Uh, Obama, if you look at the promises during the campaign, they, he, they were carefully constructed to be vacuous. I mean, hope and change don't tell you anything. And any party manager who read polls would, of course, have picked those slogans. In fact, McCain did, too. You could read the polls and say 80% of the population thinks the country's going in the wrong direction. Okay, hope and change. You know, uh, what hope? What change? Well, it's, it's like a blank slate. You can write on it whatever you want. Uh, Hillary Clinton's engagement with Darfur. You know, terrible things going on in Darfur. By comparison with the region, they don't amount to a lot, unfortunately. Like what's going on in Eastern Congo is incomparably worse than Darfur. But Darfur is a very popular topic for Western humanists, because uh, you can blame it on an enemy. I mean, you have to distort a lot, but you can blame it on Arabs, you know, the bad guys. Uh, so yes, there's a huge movement to save Darfur. What about saving Eastern Congo, where maybe 20 times as many people have been killed? 
Well, that gets kind of tricky uh, for people who say like their cell phones, uh, which are uh, using uh, minerals from Eastern Congo that are obtained by multinationals, uh, you know, sponsoring militias which uh, slaughter and kill and, uh, you know, get the minerals, or by simply the fact that uh, Rwanda is probably the worst of the many agents, and that's a U.S. ally. So that's kind of not a convenient topic. So there's no save Eastern Congo campaigns. And for Hillary Clinton to, you know, join the popular Save Darfur campaign, but of course not to do anything about it, uh, that just makes sense in the context of ordinary politics. Sorry if that sounds cynical, but it's hard to think of anything else, at least I can. Well, in the light of last, in the light of, the pes of pessimism, what is to be done? Uh, first of all, I don't, if I sound pessimistic, it's my fault. Um, there's a lot of reasons to be optimistic. Uh, in fact, I gave some, like the difference between the reaction to Vietnam and the reaction to Iraq. Okay. You know, what happened isn't nice, could have been a lot worse. Uh, and the, there were constraints imposed domestically. Uh, the Western imperial powers couldn't go as far as they did in Vietnam because there was more opposition. And a lot of other things changed since the 60s. I don't have to tell you that. I mean, the US and Britain, you know, European countries and others, third world countries, they're just a lot more civilized in a lot of ways. Uh, rights of minorities, rights of women, uh, concern over the rights of future generations, which is what the environmental movement is about, didn't exist then, and plenty of other things. The solidarity movements, which have developed uh, in the 80s, uh, complete innovation in the history of Western imperialism. It came out of mainstream America. A lot of it came out of churches, including evangelical churches. Uh, nothing like that ever happened in the history of imperialism. Okay, it's now spread over the world. That's big change, uh, global justice movements are completely new. Uh, all of these things happen, not in a day, you know, but they happen over time. If you look over not even a long range, just a couple of decades, it's a pretty dramatic change. So that's not a reason for pessimism, it's a reason for understanding that there's a lot that we can do. In fact, it's easier now than it was in the past because you can uh, exploit the legacy that's been it's handed down by people who have struggled and won rights and freedom. So yeah, there's plenty of opportunities. Uh, the more privileged you are, the more your opportunities. So there's no particular reason to be pessimistic, just to be realistic. Uh, Obama, uh, Gramsci's famous statement about uh, pessimism of the intellect and optimism of the will. Yes, that's a good, it's a good slogan.